You are listening to In Daba Down South, a podcast of conscious conversations towards a sustainable, regenerative, and thriving South Africa. I'm your host, Catherine Langsford. If we were concerned with efficiency, if Elon Musk were trying to save the planet, we need something bicycles, not electric cars. So I would say that in the ecosystem of transport options, when electric cars are better than petrol diesel cars, the best that can be said about them is that they are the second worst option. As part of the long-term move towards sustainable forms of transportation, interest in electric vehicles has grown rapidly in recent years. But in a country beset with electricity challenges, widespread use of electric vehicles currently seems remote. So, are electric vehicles viable in South Africa? In this episode, we consider the opportunities and problems that electric vehicles present in our journey towards greening the transportation sector in South Africa. Our guest today is Neil Thomas Stacey. He is a scientist in the chemical engineering department at Fitz University. Welcome, Neil. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me on. Let's begin by having you introduce yourself, and could you also tell us how you got into the work that you're doing? Yeah, to tell you the sort of long-form story, um, I, did, I studied chemical engineering uh, because I didn't know what I wanted to do, and it had the shortest queue at registration of the engineering disciplines. I'd sort of finished the degree and wasn't um, thrilled with the whole thing, and the only job offers I had were like quite far away, and I didn't own a car yet. And then someone told me that you get paid to do a master's degree, so I figured, okay, well, I can continue doing what I'm doing and save up for a car without disrupting my life. Uh, so I did that. And then uh, when I was finishing my master's, I was once again at a loose end, not knowing what, what should I do with my life. And my dentist suggested that I do a PhD, and so I did. And then at some point in that process, I realized, uh, firstly, that I do enjoy research, that, you know, the practice of doing science is just uh, intellectually interesting. It's just you, you get to... Um, indulge your curiosity and find out how things work. And I found out also that the, the basic skill set offered by chemical engineering is, is very useful for you know, finding sort of fundamental understanding of how stuff works in the world. So, I mean, uh, by the time you finish the undergraduate degree, you have sort of a basic knowledge of the phenomenological workings of most things. And as you start to specialize, you can work out how all kinds of different stuff works. So, uh, my research spreads across quite a few different disciplines. Predominantly, initially, I worked on energy-related stuff, um, having previously done uh, membrane separation, but that turns out to uh, not have much broad appeal, um, so wandered into sort of more mainstream interesting stuff in energy. And then when COVID arrived, my membrane separation and, and sort of membrane behavior expertise was useful in characterizing ECMO machines and some of the actual mechanisms by which COVID causes illness. And so now I sort of find myself evenly split between COVID research and energy research. What an interesting journey. Yeah, none of it on purpose. The, the best kind of journey. Our discussion today centers around electric vehicles, so I'd like to focus on the basics first uh, by understanding how electric vehicles are similar and different to vehicles with internal combustion engines. Yeah, so I mean basically, um, 
almost the entire thing is the same. Um, an electric car is not all that fundamentally different uh, from a petrol car. It, it's the main sort of fundamental difference is the form of energy that is used to make it move around. Uh, so, you know, the, the energy is not necessarily produced in the car. You know, if you're using electricity, the energy is initially produced elsewhere. Uh, in the case of petrol, uh, you kind of find it's, it's both an energy carrier and an energy source. So yeah, uh, basically, in a petrol car, you're producing your energy on site. In an electric car, uh, the sort of whole power chain becomes much more flexible because you produce your energy elsewhere at some other location, and that frees up um, quite a few options. Uh, you, you're able to uh, be more flexible in terms of what your initial energy source is, and you're able to better handle the emissions that arise from it. I mean, if you, for instance, are trying to collect CO2 uh, for capture, uh, it's very difficult to follow a petrol vehicle around and, and catch everything that comes out the tailpipe. Uh, it's, I mean, I say difficult as a stand-in for uh, utterly impossible. <laughs> but if you look at doing it with an electric car, uh, for instance, you, you're producing all of your CO2 emissions at a power station, central location, um, and you don't have any tailpipe emissions. So, an electric car versus a petrol car, you're basically just looking at different choices for an energy carrier to use. I mean, there's, there's no guarantee, for instance, that a um, car driven you know, with an internal combustion engine necessarily has net CO2 emissions. If you're using a biofuel um, or um, a sort of a synthetic fuel that is produced from renewable energy, uh, it can still be the same as a regular petrol car, uh, but the CO2 emissions overall are net zero. So Really, it just comes down to a, a choice of energy carrier. And when you're choosing between different energy carriers, you look for uh, which characteristics are most favorable. The, the overall efficiency of the energy cycle, because that dictates how much energy has to go in for a certain amount that has to come out at the end. And the energy density. And, and that's actually where petrol and, and diesel perform spectacularly well. Uh, you know, they have something like um, like 40 megajoules per uh, kilogram. Uh, you know, batteries are like one-tenth the density. Uh, so, and then if you look at volumetric density, which is your, your real sort of scaling factor for moving fuels around, uh, there's, really there's hardly anything which is better than, you know, the conventional liquid fuels on, on that measure. So petrol and diesel have been extremely convenient for us. Uh, if you think about their properties as an energy carrier, they carry an enormous amount of energy, uh, much higher than basically anything else for the same volume. They're stable. You know, if you fill your petrol tank and you park your car for a month, the, the only reason why it won't start when you come back, it's not because the tank is empty, it's because the battery's flat. If you also consider how long it takes to charge your phone versus how long it takes to fill a petrol tank, the, the rate at which we can transmit energy is, is also extremely high. So... Uh, in terms of all of those properties uh, that dictate the convenience of it to use as an energy carrier, uh, the, the, the conventional liquid fuels are basically unbeatable. That's why we've gotten so stuck on them. Uh, humans generally are quite bad at relinquishing conveniences to which we've become accustomed. Uh, we essentially just don't ever really do it. And that means that alternative means of energy and even alternative forms of transport, the big barrier to adopting them is the simple inconvenience. Uh, what we currently have is really convenient, and the alternatives are mostly less convenient. The reason 
there's a lot of interest in electric cars is that as the technology underlying them has, has improved and batteries have gotten uh, better in terms of uh, capacity and so on, it's now coming close to matching the convenience of a petrol or diesel car. The alternatives, which are, you know, it's, it's, it's not much cleaner per se. It's not environmentally necessarily a huge improvement to switch to electric cars. If your source of electricity is itself carbon intensive, then potentially the electric car has higher carbon emissions. So it's, it's context-based. In South Africa, currently, our electricity production is terrible. So electric car, you're looking at more carbon emissions than petrol car in South Africa. Elsewhere, that's not the case. Uh, if you do the same calculation in America, um, you come out with considerably less emissions. Uh, you do the same in Europe, you also come out way less emissions. Uh, but if you do the same calculation um, for a bus, regardless of what kind of energy is in that bus, it comes out an order of magnitude better than either of the types of car. Um, if you, so it's possible, uh, we're gonna veer into uh, biology for a second. If, if you um, sort of quantify the energy efficiency of different animals based on what distance a kilogram of animal can travel for a certain given amount of energy. So like you have like a kilogram, kilometer per kilojoule kind of thing. Um, all different animals could be ranked on, on this uh, metric because, you know, their, their weight is different, but that's factored in because you're doing per kilogram. So you, you can rank all animals on that basis. Humans come out in like the 40th percentile. So if we're just walking around, we come out slightly below average uh, for energy efficiency. The most efficient animals are um, birds that fly extremely long distances like um, condors and albatrosses. They, I mean, obviously they use very little energy to get around. That's why they're able to stay airborne for incredibly long times and travel incredibly long distances over oceans, very energy efficient. The other extreme, least energy efficient, uh, you look at like really tiny um, animals like insects and, and some kinds of birds, well, not so much birds, but tiny mammals and tiny insects and so on, the smaller stuff that moves like really quickly and uses explosive bursts of energy, very energy inefficient. Now, on that ranking system, if you were to put different modes of personal transport for a human onto that scale, a human on a bicycle would be the most efficient animal on earth. A human driving a car would be the least efficient. So when we chose between these two different modes of transport, uh, essentially we decided at the time that we did not care about efficiency, we were just going to take the one that is more convenient. We're now sort of trying to walk back the negative effects of having done that. And they extend beyond just the, the climate change effects. Cars impose huge burdens on society in terms of the infrastructure that is required to support them and the amount of space that they end up occupying. Because, you know, the space of a car is not just where that car currently is, it's the roads that have to be allocated to it. Uh, even in a parking lot, only 30% of the space is occupied by actual parking spaces, the rest is spaces in between for moving your car. So we, we allocate huge quantities of resources to supporting cars, huge quantities of space to them. But climate change is just one element of why cars were a dumb idea, but like a really convenient one. And, and so the electric car is the next sort of evolution in this where we are unwilling to relinquish that convenience and use efficient transport. So we are looking for something which uh, I mean, cynically, uh, we're, we're likely choosing something that just looks clean uh, and frequently won't actually be all that clean. If we were 
concerned with efficiency. If Elon Musk were trying to save the planet, um, he would be selling bicycles, not electric cars. So I would say that in the ecosystem of transport options, when electric cars are better than petrol and diesel cars, the best that can be said about them is that they are the second worst option. Yeah, and I think the hype around electric vehicles feeds into what Charles Eisenstein and others call the Masters of the Universe narrative, which speaks to our absolute faith in technology and the belief that whatever resource we deplete, market forces will stimulate conditions for some brilliant person to create a technological substitute that will help us overcome the problem. Yeah. And in the case of transport, the problem has been solved. We just don't like it. People are unwilling to switch to using buses and bicycles. If we could move on now to looking at the batteries that are used in electric vehicles, can you walk us through the impact of manufacturing those and disposing of them? Now, I'm, I'm not uh, by any means an expert on batteries. It's not my field per se. Your general environmental impacts of extracting a resource and using it come down to certain fundamentals. Whatever you dig up out of the ground, if it doesn't go back into the ground, it's now up here and it, it has to be doing something. The materials in batteries are often quite toxic. You have sort of rare earth metals and so on, but, but also the, the process of mining them also produce a lot of toxic byproducts. So th there is an environmental impact to digging them up. There's several different kinds of environmental impact and sometimes some social impacts. But the, I suppose the fortunate thing is that, you know, if you're looking at powering something on coal, which you have to dig out of the ground, you keep digging coal up out of the ground. So those impacts just keep happening. It's ongoing. Every time you drive your car, there are those impacts. Uh, if you instead have a situation where, you know, your energy is produced renewably, but you have batteries and solar panels and so on, as long as you're able to recycle those materials at end of life, then that impact only has to happen once. And then from there on, it's okay. So in terms of the extractive impacts, there's a short-term negative to electric cars, but long-term, uh, they have generally considerably less uh, like long-term extractive impact. I mean, if you look at oil uh, as one example, um, you'd have to bundle into your calculation the contribution to environmental damage of um, oil spills, which is very significant in um, you know, for natural gas, you look at methane leakage, and then for coal, uh, it's just... And, you know, in South Africa, roughly 30% of our uh, fuel, petrol and diesel, is made from coal. The thing that makes our electricity dirty is that it's made almost entirely from coal. Uh, the thing that makes our petrol and diesel dirtier is that they're made partly from coal. The widespread, I mean, the, the general impacts of mining coal are really bad. You know, it's not just the CO2 that arises when you burn it. You know, you have sulfur contained in the coal. You get sulfurous emissions, you get particulate emissions at pretty much every uh, point along the chain. You know, at the, every time you're loading and unloading coal, whether it be from a conveyor belt or a truck or what have you, it produces fine particles which are harmful to health. Uh, coal contains some, some amount of mercury. You just have this whole raft of different emissions associated with coal. And as a consequence, it, it has a lot of um, externalities. Just aside from what's obvious, there's a bunch of other stuff that comes with it. So that, that's a, sort of the biggest uh, contribution uh, to major pollution in South Africa is our dependence on coal. Now, if, if you look at the mining impacts of like digging up lithium and cobalt and so on, they're also quite negative. But once you've got the stuff that you need, you can stop mining. 
with colleagues, you keep going because it's it's an ongoing drain. So, yeah, extractive industry is is always damaging, but you'd rather have an extractive industry that uh, only has to be damaged once. So, in that respect, electric cars may be long term better choice than petrol cars. Uh, short term, maybe not so much. And then, you know, long term, the best you can ever say about them is that they're likely to be the second worst available option. And my understanding about uh, the batteries is that they can be used for other purposes once they're no longer uh, able to be used in transportation. Is that correct? Uh, I would imagine that generally with a uh, battery that is, is past its end of life, you, you wouldn't directly immediately use it for something else. Um, I mean, you, you could in principle. Your usability threshold in transport is quite high. Uh, your usability threshold in other applications like household might be a bit lower. So you could potentially extend the lifespan of the battery a little bit by repurposing it for something else, but its functionality will continue to decline. So it still has to get retired anyway. And then at that point, what you're looking at is, is not so much um, like continuing to use the battery, you need to process it and recover all the raw materials so that you can make a new battery from scratch. And I mean, it's, it's I don't think that South Africa is an example, our um, recovery rate of e-waste is quite poor. Uh, we don't have great infrastructure for, uh, for it at the moment. Um, so that, that's something which, uh, as this transition to electric cars happens, we, we have to uh, get on very urgently because uh, many of those substances are, are really quite toxic if they get into the environment. Uh, so if we don't have a good way of um, handling the batteries, uh, we could do quite a lot of damage quite quickly. So we need to get those ducks in a row before um, rushing off to, to get electric cars on the roads. And that needs to be done at an industrial level rather than relying on individuals, which is often what happens in these situations. You have to do both uh, because you have to have the industrial backbone that can actually process the batteries. And, you know, they have to be able to obtain the batteries and pay for them and do the processing. But you also still need the individual to play along because you're talking about products which are in the hands of individuals. If they don't do their bit to ensure that those products end up at the right place at the end of life, then no matter what industrial um, structure you have, you're still stuck. So you have to have economic incentives, uh, basically. Uh, historically, it has generally turned out that economic and financial incentives are more successful at motivating action than social awareness ones. It's unfortunate, but uh, that's sort of the way it is. So you have to ensure that people are uh, incentivized to do the right thing. And that we as consumers have some power in this situation that by using our wallets in particular ways, we can steer policy decisions or we can indicate what we favor, which could be a more environmentally conscious option than the alternative. Mm, that's tricky um, for the reason that when you look at these energy networks, they're very complex. I mean, in, in almost every facet of our lives, we live in a very complex world now. Um, and it's, it's really quite difficult to um, get to grips with all those complexities, uh, particularly in the age of sort of mis and disinformation as it is arising and the increasing competitiveness of the attention economy. It becomes very difficult to expect consumers to actually know what is and is not more or less environmentally friendly. I mean, it's, that's part of my job is to sort of determine and communicate these things to people. But 
it's, it's really difficult. And I think you'll find at this point that, that it's very likely that there is no science journal currently in print with a higher readership than like, Kim Kardashian's Instagram account. I think it's become uh, quite difficult to rely on an informed public to make good decisions. Sadly, yes. So the hype around electric vehicles is mounting seemingly by the day, as we've been discussing, but you've suggested elsewhere that switching to an electric vehicle is not advisable in the South African context currently. I think you've touched on this, but can you explain a little bit more why that's the case? Mm, okay, so South Africa, we make all of our electricity, or well, not all, but like 90%, 80 to 90% of our electricity from coal. Um, and coal is... Uh, you can simplify it as basically just carbon, which then combines with oxygen to make carbon dioxide. Uh, so the amount of carbon dioxide you get from the fuel is very high. You know, if you have other fuels where um, you have sort of longer chain hydrocarbons, that doesn't produce CO2 to the same degree. So coal is the most carbon intensive fuel source. The problem with that is, is I mean, that just implies you're going to get higher carbon emissions from using coal to using anything else. But the other problem that we have is that our coal-fired power stations are actually really inefficient. These days, um, state-of-the-art, um, best possible practice, integrated gasification, combined cycle type coal-fired power station, you, you get like 60 to 70% overall efficiency uh, at the sort of top end. I mean, 60 is maybe more realistic. Our coal-fired power stations, the majority of them operate at 35% efficiency. Is we, we use really old-fashioned steam boilers. It's, we're just using outdated technology. Even the new ones that we build um, are using outdated old technology, and that worsens the efficiency. The lower the efficiency is, the more coal you have to burn to get the same amount of energy to the end point. And we then have an additional um, step of inefficiency, uh, which arises because our electricity grid is uh, not the world's most efficient at distribution. You know, if you're transmitting electricity over a long distance with losses, the amount that you have to put in is increased for the same amount to arrive at the other end. So those inefficiencies uh, between them all sort of stack up to make our electricity extremely carbon intensive. I mean, if you think about the whole chain, let's say you're living in Cape Town, for instance. Uh, some of your electricity comes from Kuburg which is fine, it's nearby, um, but some of it comes all the way from the Impumalanga coal belt. So some degree of, of, some portion of what's happening is, you know, we dig up coal in Impumalanga, we, we burn it uh, to boil water to spin a, uh, a steam turbine, and then we put it into, you know, power cables and we send it, you know, 1,400 kilometers to put it into someone's car so that they can drive around. It's, it's I mean, from an outsider's um, perspective, if you weren't aware of, how human society was built, and you just uh, were an alien who stumbled upon this uh, configuration, it would just look absolutely absurd. It's a ridiculous way of getting energy to where you need it to be. And then what that energy does is move the car around, and only a little portion of it actually serves the purpose of moving the human around. So the whole system is, is really just um, astonishingly inefficient. That is why, at this point, an electric car uh, in South Africa is... Uh, ridiculously carbon intensive and actually slightly worse, not a huge amount, but slightly worse than a petrol car. The reason uh, is, is actually the, the fact that um, a big um, portion of our petrol is made from coal with Sassol's coal to liquids process. You know, there's an example of how 
um, a public that is very concerned about climate change uh, perhaps doesn't have the kind of social awareness that would allow them to sort of drive change with their spending habits. So the petrol and diesel that is produced by Sassol um, through that process is somewhere between twice as carbon intensive and three times as carbon intensive as petrol and diesel produced you know, the normal way uh, from oil. Uh, but you know, we, we all just see the same product uh, when it goes into the petrol tank. And it's also not to say that you, know, you could just go to BP instead of Sassol and thereby reduce your, your carbon footprint. In South Africa, we treat the fuels as essentially fungible. They're continuously traded between the different uh, oil companies. So you get some amount of Sassol product in your, your BP fuel. You get some amount of Sassol product in your Shell fuel and vice versa. So it's all just kind of mixed. You know, in principle, if um, you had a very concerned public making a concerted effort um, to change that carbon footprint, it would quite rapidly achieve a reduction in the proportion of our petrol coming from coal to liquids. Uh, the fact that this uh, hasn't happened is, is a fair illustration um, of how, uh, you know, voting with wallets that isn't frequently effective at achieving environmental goals at the moment. So at this point, change has to um, come from a sort of much more central source, and that requires uh, very good legislation and very intelligent decision-making at a government level. Uh, you can use your own judgment uh, regarding how much we can count on that. So we have this chicken and egg situation where uh, a move to electric vehicles rests on enough reliable and accessible electricity to support usage. But as you've mentioned, South Africa's electricity generation and distribution processes are severely challenged and the situation is unlikely to change anytime soon. So, I mean, are we excluded from the movement towards environmentally conscious forms of transportation? I think that, that to some degree maybe we are excluded from simply just imitating what other countries are doing because, you know, our electricity generation context is completely different to that of a country like Germany, say. Well, they're, they're quite far forward with energy transition. We're nowhere near where they are uh, in terms of their energy efficiency. So if we just copy what they're doing, you know, in terms of the visible stuff on the surface, like, oh, we'll buy electric cars, use the same methods as them, without the underlying infrastructure, it just won't be beneficial. Um, and in terms of the resources we have available uh, to do this stuff, we, we also have scarcely a fraction of the resources of developing countries. I mean, just in terms of sheer money. Uh, we, we can't throw huge amounts of money at this. So we are excluded from imitating richer countries who are further along in their transition. But that doesn't mean that we are excluded from having a successful and intelligent energy transition. And to some degree, it offers an opportunity because if we don't imitate what they're doing and we instead go our own way and come up with properly efficient and well thought out and actually innovative solutions, uh, we could potentially achieve a better energy transition than they have. Uh, so for instance, we have at present a lower you know, percentage of car ownership than many first world countries. So we, we maybe have a better opportunity than they do 
to take ourselves to a point where people are using transport other than cars, whereas they would have to convince people who you know, are, are entirely used to using cars and become completely accustomed to them to give them up. We actually just have to offer a better alternative to people who don't yet own a car. If we just take the route of trying to imitate what uh, first world countries are doing, then we are excluded from achieving the same outcomes that they will get. And we also don't have the resources to keep up with them. Uh, with renewable energy, there will be stringent competition for limited resources. You know, the, there's a, something of a shortage of lithium in the world, and, and, and that will drive up the price of batteries and the raw materials for making solar panels are also uh, quite limited. Uh, so if everyone is trying to convert to uh, renewable energy, we will be competing for those resources. And because we have less money to throw around, we will lose that competition. The best way to participate is to not play the same game. So we have an opportunity to do something different to what they're doing. And if we get it right, uh, what we do will be better than what they are doing. So if we try to imitate what they're doing, we'll fail. But we can actually beat them if we are willing to try. So if you were put in charge of the plan towards a just transition, what would mm. it look like? I mean, it might look like me fleeing to Switzerland or something. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think it's a, it is a difficult spot to be in. There are certain really obvious things. So humans use energy for a couple of things mainly. Now, the one that we've discussed up to this point is, is moving ourselves around. Uh, we drag two tons of steel with us everywhere we go, which is silly. But anyway, that, that's what we use energy for. And the other one is heating water. That's a huge portion of um, household electricity consumption. It's also a big portion of industrial uh, electricity consumption. And it's, a, it's really daft to use electricity for that purpose. Really, the first easiest step and the cheapest one is to get a solar water heater on every house. And then once you've done that, I mean, at that point, we, we no longer have load shedding. Well, the amount of energy consumption currently being used to heat water, which could be mostly replaced through solar water heating, would amount to enough of an energy reduction to basically bring it into load shedding. So that's, that's, the, that's your cheapest entry point. That is um, like lowest hanging fruit. And then you start looking at um, cleaning up electricity production. There's a lot of talk, for instance, of, of building huge solar farms in the Northern Cape. Let's say that's intended to provide electricity. The sunlight here where I live in Johannesburg is, is only slightly less intense than in the Northern Cape. So it would be much more sensible um, for getting electricity into my house to put a solar panel on my roof than one in the Northern Cape. Because uh, then, you know, one of those requires you to transmit electricity over like a thousand kilometers with losses along the way. Uh, you need exorbitant quantities of copper to do this. So your sort of lowest hanging fruits, your first one is solar water heaters. Then there's replacing some portion of household electricity consumption through solar panels. And only after that do you then start pursuing, you know, the, the end stages of decarbonization, like zero carbon vehicles. So one of the other big um, emitters in South Africa is mineral processing, the smelting iron ore, etc. Uh, extremely high temperature processes. Now we mostly use coal for that, along with electricity, uh, to provide extra energy. One of the very sort of promising 
new process pathways for achieving those things is to replace the coal with waste plastic. It, it turns out waste plastic is more energy dense than coal. You know, it contains more energy per ton. It also has lower CO2 emissions per quantity of energy. So there's sort of a twofold improvement in the CO2 output. The extraction of it is much less onerous. You don't have to mine it. it it's around. Whereas, you know, coal mining has these negative externalities in the form of the emissions. Uh, waste plastic utilization has positive externalities in the form of the fact that it removes the nasty pollutant from the atmosphere. That's one of the, the avenues that I would, I would be inclined to pursue very aggressively because there are other economic benefits to it potentially, which is that at the moment, many developed countries literally pay other countries to take their plastic. They will ship it to you, uh, hand it over, and they'll pay you some money uh, to take it. There are some obstacles to doing this on a large scale uh, at the moment, and some of them are legislative in international law. But, you know, that can be amended and fixed. But that's your sort of order of things. You start with solar water heaters, you move on to solar panels, and then you, you also start replacing coal with waste plastic as a transitional stopgap because the rate at which coal is used globally is higher than the rate at which plastic is produced. So you can't just swap them one for one um, on an ongoing basis. However, we've manufactured 7 billion tons of plastic so far. Uh, so that's a ton per person in the world. Uh, so there is a ton of plastic for each person, and that's sort of an accumulated uh, stockpile. So if we start pursuing the transition by using up the backlog, we can do that until such time as we're ready to uh, switch finally to a, a more fully decarbonized energy economy. I'd like to bring us back to electric vehicles. And I think another issue around resistance to uptake is around charging stations and distances in South Africa. So is the use of electric vehicles likely to be confined to urban centers because of the limited number of charging stations in outlying areas? Well, we're sort of all waiting for a promised announcement from Vikilam Balula about the provision of charging stations. One of the uh, scenarios that many people have speculated is that uh, they'll put charging stations all along the N1 so that you have this basically electric um, transport backbone. Uh, so we'll, we'll have to wait and see uh, what that announcement actually consists of. Um, there, there might be good ideas in there, there might be bad ideas we, we don't know yet, so we, we can't sort of uh, make sweeping judgments in advance. So, I mean, you mentioned the issue of range. Uh, you know, distance that people have to drive. Uh, do you confine electric cars to urban centers or can you do long-range driving? And that's kind of a double-edged sword because if you have a, a car with a really long range, that means the battery has the capacity to, say, take you a 1,000 kilometers. Now, batteries also have charge dissipation, which happens on a continuous basis. So, I mean, it's, it's the same as what I mentioned earlier. If you charge your phone and you leave it in the drawer, how long do you expect uh, until you come back to it and it's not charged anymore. Well, this is the, this is the case with batteries in cars as well. You have this continuous loss of charge, and the rate of loss is proportional to the capacity of the battery. So, if you put bigger batteries in to increase the range, you also increase the charge dissipation, so you increase the losses. You know, whereas with a petrol car, there's no major cost to having a slightly bigger tank. Uh, with the uh, you know electric car, you have 
aside from the extra weight of a larger battery um, and the, I mean, the extra cost and space it takes up, uh, you also just have constant losses of energy proportional to the size of the battery. What you actually want with an electric car is that it is used frequently and sort of high volumes of driving because that increases the ratio between useful use of charge and useless use of charge. If you look at the scenario of short-range urban driving or suburban driving, that sort of is the use case of the individual owner who uses their car you know, just to go to the grocery store and do the school run or what have you. That use case is actually quite inefficient because your total mileage per day is really low and that means that you're likely to have a high percentage of the charge you put into your car uh, is wasted. You might find that electric cars are actually much more efficient overall if they're doing much longer haul driving. Then the issue is that you have to make provision for charging along the way and you have to have uh, sufficient range. And then you also have to ensure that that vehicle is used frequently. Because, you know, if you have an electric car that can drive you to Cape Town, uh, from Joburg, but you seldom use it, then you also have the charge dissipation problem. The best entry points for bringing electric cars into the transport economy are actually those entry points where the usage is very predictable and regular, and the usage volume is quite high per vehicle. So personal cars are not your best entry point for electric vehicles. Public transport and trucking are the best starting points for bringing it into the, the transport sector. On the issue of personal transportation and public transportation, South Africa has a complex relationship with public transport. There are significant class and race connotations to the use of public transport that impact its uptake. And there are infrastructure and access challenges which discount its usage. So if transition to the widespread use of public transport is the more sustainable option, as you've just suggested, then how do we shift perceptions? around public transport? And how do we overcome these infrastructure challenges? So this is also a bit of a chicken and egg scenario. Basically, the extent to which the, the people in your society are willing and well willing to mingle with each other um, is, is inversely proportional to how much income inequality you have. The, the greater your income inequality, the more you will have your wealthier income brackets wanting to distance themselves from the rest of the population. And as a consequence, we, we have essentially a completely two-tiered transport system where the sort of richest 20% um, of people in South Africa, or, or roughly that, that fraction, basically only use cars or maybe the car train. And then you sort of have the rest of the people have to use public transport or the minibus taxi industry. Meanwhile, the people from that 20%, uh, they, they would resist uh, almost to the death using a taxi. For me, if you just give me two scenarios without any more information and you ask me to say, to what extent has South Africa fixed its transport? If the one scenario you give me is all petrol cars have been replaced with electric cars, I'll say, well, I don't know, because only there's only around 7 million personal cars in the country. So, okay, now you've got 7 million electric cars instead. Okay, what about the other 50 million people? But if you, you tell me instead we have a situation where the middle class are happy to take a taxi, then we've, we've for sure fixed the transport system in two different ways. The first is that uh, transport has become more efficient because you know, if people are using taxis where they used to use cars, there's less emissions uh, and less cost. The other way is that if now your taxi industry is at the point where the middle class is willing to use it, you know, it's kind of good for the middle class, but it's great for everyone else. 
because the current situation is one where the public transport system in many cases and places is so onerous that the middle class would not be willing to use it. Uh, so why should, why should everyone else have to use it if it's that bad? Reforming public transport to some degree resolves issues of inequality, but it's also hard to do it and get any sort of buy-in and willingness to use it until you've solved inequality. So it's, it's very much chicken or egg. It's also it's a good entry point for electrification because of the usage patterns. It might be that if we find ourselves in possession of sufficient chunks of money to throw around to achieve an energy transition, one potentially quite good way of achieving it would be to spend money on reforming and electrifying the minibus taxi industry. You know, you, you need to then sort out issues of comfort and you need regulations and you need you know, to sort out the safety issues. And then what you can do is you put the solar panels at the taxi ramps. And the same as how like some stores have parking lots where there's shade for the cars, but the shade is from solar panels. Or if one did the same thing to provision shelters and carports at taxi ramps, where you have you kill two birds with one stone because you have the infrastructure you need at the taxi rank, but you've also, with the same expense, covered the uh, fuel cost. That would be a good route. Uh, imagine it's not high on the list of things that are going to be done. I don't think that you know the government has pursued getting middle-class people onto taxis very aggressively. That would be one of these sort of ideal scenarios. That said, earlier this year, I heard that plans to test electric minibus taxis are underway, or there's a pilot project. As you suggested, it brings up a lot of policy and economic issues. So as things stand, an electric taxi would cost around double that of a locally manufactured diesel minibus taxi. And also the minibus taxi industry is a large fuel user and pays tax on every litre bought, and that would be a large loss of revenue for the government if they switch to electric vehicles. So is it a viable solution long-term? I don't think the current situation is viable. I think it's more viable than what we're doing. There's a lot of obstacles, a lot of fiddly things that have to be resolved. And I mean, the taxi industry is, is famous for being difficult to negotiate with. You know, government would, would, would have to you know, structure a deal in such a way that the um, taxi bosses are happy with it. I would say there is a big upside to it. Uh, because any time you're sort of putting distributed solar infrastructure, there's a significant risk of theft. Um, solar panels are, are quite prized as an, as an item to steal. Because, I mean, it's a continuous source of electricity. I would venture that, that I would trust the taxi industry to look after their infrastructure quite effectively. If the deal is set up with the taxi industry that they um, are, are given and then have to manage the solar infrastructure to power their fleets, I would have fairly high confidence that the infrastructure will stay in place. But it does strike me that this whole issue is, is another example of expecting those with limited means, uh, most of whom are making environmentally sustainable choices by necessity, not necessarily by choice, uh, asking them to do even more where those whose lifestyles perpetuate environmental destruction continue unchallenged or unchanged. It's a fundamental feature of an intrinsic feature of capitalism, where basically there are resources of various sorts, including like environmental health and the atmosphere. Doing stuff uses up those resources or impacts them. And money is largely speaking a proxy or a right to do that. 
I would say. So the more money you have and the more money you spend, the more resources you consume and the more impact you have. I mean, it's that that is just how our society is built. So, uh, yeah, uh, people who are wealthier have larger impacts. And that does seem really unfair uh, when you then want people who are less wealthy to try and reduce their impact. But uh, buying power is extremely powerful. We're coming to a close. And I wanted to raise another point that transportation is one of the most difficult areas of sustainable living to change because of the limited number of available options to us. Ride-hailing services offer an alternative to personal car ownership, but these services still rely on internal combustion engine vehicles, and they cater to a small market in South Africa because of the cost um, and, I suppose, availability in outlying areas in rural areas. Um, but I think changes in information and technology are likely to make car sharing and various forms of transport as a service a reality in future. But given these complexities, what can we as individuals who are keen to reduce our environmental footprint in the area of transportation do? The answer here is always going to be a bit infuriating because it's really like prosaic stuff actually has the largest impact. You could buy the, the most fuel-efficient car available, something like a Toyota Igo instead of whatever you currently have or so on. You, you can make these big, splashy-looking choices, uh, or even an electric car, for instance, that you, you charge at home and you, you buy and you, you put a solar panel on your roof, etc. And if you make a bunch of these changes, uh, and let's say you, you, you manage to reduce your environmental impact of driving by half, I mean, you have to make pretty sweeping changes of that sort to get half. Uh, you would achieve the exact same benefit by just carpooling with one person. There's quite prosaic stuff that has really big benefits uh, that people should be doing. Really big, splashy stuff, which, I mean, is more appealing. You know, the idea of, of saying to someone, uh, you know, I'm doing my part for the environment because uh, I sold my Mercedes and bought a Tesla. Okay, cool. But then someone else says, well, I actually just I carpool with my neighbor. They've had a bigger effect. They've done something um, more useful. Uh, societies also were quite attached to conspicuous expenditure as a means of obtaining and displaying status. And that means that people who have money, who are also the people who have emissions, when given a choice between an environmentally friendly action that displays the fact that they have money versus one which, you know, from a distance could look like it signals the opposite, uh, they they will choose the the splashy one instead. If you sell your Mercedes to to carpool uh, rather than buy a Tesla, people might assume that you've you've run into hard times. And you know the the fact that we we use conspicuous expenditure, which has environmental damage tied to it, as a means of obtaining status, is a really wonky concept. You know we're all sharing the same pool of resources, and we kind of applaud people who take the most out of it. If you were to reduce the whole thing down to like a really small scale and you're having a get-together, who do you consider the best person present at a gathering? Is it the person who brings the most food or is it the person who eats the most food? At that scale, we're really comfortable saying, obviously, we, we like the person who brought the food more than the one who ate half of it. But then on a broader scale in society, we just reverse that completely. Environmental damage is really closely tied to these social concepts and it's really hard to fix 
the environmental stuff without actually also fixing the other stuff first. I'll leave you with a, a really bizarre statistic, which, which came up in a study a few years ago, which is the average carbon footprint of a Democrat voter in America is slightly higher than that of a Republican voter, which shows a desire to perhaps outwardly improve the environment doesn't necessarily actually correspond to actual behavior that benefits the environment, or potentially there's sort of an elasticity to it, where a person might reduce their emissions in one area, but then because of that, feel that they're entitled, and this is more subconscious than conscious, but feel that they can have higher emissions in another area. So in that particular example, the Democrat voters had lower electricity consumption in the household, and also lower emissions relating to personal transport. So they either had lower limits in cars or they used transport more frequently. Uh, but what compensated for it and made it that they came out slightly ahead on the carbon footprint uh, was, was the fact that they travel much more, particularly internationally. What you gain in one area, you might lose in the other area, at least for as long as society is based around commodities and environmental consciousness is just a commodity uh, until you have some restructure that comes from the top we aren't likely to fix these things permanently. I would say that the process of climate change is not a technological one. It's a psychological and sociological. That's really powerful. Yeah, that really resonates with me. Yeah, so as an energy scientist, I've completely screwed up because I have no knowledge of psychology and sociology, so I can't fix anything. On that note, Neil, thank you for oh, thank you. this interesting discussion. Yeah, and for sharing your insights with us. I oh, know, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Indaba Down South. For more information and links to the resources mentioned in this episode, visit our website, indabadownsouth.org.za or follow us on Instagram and Twitter for updates at Indaba Down South. You can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are available. Thanks for joining us today. Here's to a sustainable, regenerative, and thriving South Africa.